Thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, guys, we were fortunate enough to snag the great Peter Schiff this week as our guest. Now, I'm sure most of you know Peter's name, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with his work. But for those who aren't, Peter is the CEO and chief global strategist of Euro Pacific Capital. He's a frequent guest on many of the mainstream financial shows that you'll see on TV. Peter has his own podcast called The Peter Schiff Show and is also the author of several books. So we started this interview off with a bang talking about the inevitable dollar collapse. And as you can imagine, the conversation spiraled into some pretty interesting topics from there. Now, I'm not sure that... Peter entirely knew what he was getting into talking to two anarchists because we were a bit surprised to find out that Peter didn't share the same level of caution and skepticism as we did regarding CBDCs. Now, at one point, Peter also put me in check (laughs) when I perhaps used a poor choice of words when I asked him if we should just get used to inflation, if it's here for good, if we're just going to just get used to it. So definitely keep an ear out for that part. Now, guys, I also want to remind you, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it and help us grow. As always, thank you for listening, Freethinkers. And here is our interview with Peter Schiff. Mr. Schiff, it's an honor to have you on our show. Matt and myself have followed your work for over a decade now and are grateful to have some time to talk with you today about uh, a few different topics. There's so much going on right now in the world of finance and economics. It's not really easy to know where to start this conversation, but I guess we could start with the national debt. You know, it's, it's now at 32.7 trillion. And since August 1st, the debt has skyrocketed at least $120 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the total annual interest payments alone on that amount of money costs the U.S. about $1 trillion a year. And I know at the beginning of this month, the, the U.S. credit rating was downgraded by Fitch, uh, which in an interview you called meaningless. And you also said that the U.S. probably won't default, but if we get to hyperinflation, that is basically the equivalent of a default. So I was wondering, do you see this as a realistic scenario by the end of this year? And I know you've spoken on this before, but do you envision some type of time frame for an in- inevitable dollar collapse? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on your, your program. Uh, the, the debt has been a, a ticking time bomb for a long time. But the reason it never exploded was because the Fed kept interest rates so low. And so that that kept it affordable. You know, it's kind of like if you remember the housing uh bus from 2008, 
one of the reasons that real estate prices were able to get so high was because so many people were taking out teaser rates on the mortgages. And so for a short period of time, their mortgage payments were really low so they can handle the big mortgage. But as those teaser rates expired and they reset higher, a lot of people, you know, couldn't make it. And then once real estate prices fell and they were underwater in their mortgage, well, they had no reason to struggle to make the payments when they had negative equity in, in the home. So that's what's happening now with the national debt. So for years and years and years, when the Fed had rates at zero, even though we had this massive debt, it didn't really cost that much to service it. We had a teaser rate on, on the debt. We, you know, I think a year ago, we were still spending maybe 300 billion a year on, um, on interest on the debt. Well, now interest on the debt is about 700, 800 billion a year. It's the third biggest line item in the federal budget after Medicare and Social Security. So it's now ahead of defense. If you think about that, we're, pay we're paying more in interest in our debt than on national defense. But it's not going to stop there. Probably by the end of the year, it'll be one trillion a year. And then by the end of next year, could be two trillion a year. And then within three or four years, we could be paying more in interest on the debt than 100% of tax revenues, meaning everything we pay in taxes, income taxes, payroll taxes, all of it is going to go just to pay interest on the debt. And a lot of that debt is owned outside the United States. And, and, and obviously, before we get to that situation, something's got to give because it's impossible for us to do that. And the reason it's going to be that expensive is because rates right now are around 5%. But every time a note matures with, you know, say the government borrowed money two, three years ago, and in the interest cost was a quarter of a percent, a half a percent, and now that matures, and they have to roll it over. They have to sell another bond to pay off that bond. But now the interest is 5%. So you, the, the cost is going up by a factor of 10. And we're running deficits now, annual deficits, you know, a couple of trillion a year. So it keeps on growing. So, I mean, think about if by the end of this decade, which is still, what, six, seven years away, let's say the national debt is 40 trillion. I think it'll be a lot higher than that. But- you know, if we're paying just 5% on 40 trillion, that's $2 trillion a year all by itself, you know, at 5%. Um, but the debt could be much higher than that. Yeah, obviously. And it doesn't show any signs of slowing. You know, like so you, I remember you accurately predicted the, the collapse in 2008. And we're, you know, arguably in a far, far worse position now. And I was wondering, like, do you, so, like, do you think that there's a tipping point? Do you have a prediction in mind for, like, this this tipping point as the, the national debt continues to climb? Like, where is that point? You know, like, well, I, I, I wish I knew, you know, because I, I would have thought that we would have tipped a long time ago. Right. <laughs> so we're, we're literally living on borrowed time. I, I just don't know how much. But it's, it's going to be a function of our creditors 
coming to terms with reality and just not wanting to hold on to our debt, not wanting to continuously lend us money when it's quite clear we're never going to pay it back. I mean, sure, we'll print money and keep you know, paying. But if we do that, the value of what we're printing has to collapse. And, and so our lenders, they may get their dollars back, but they're not going to get their purchasing power back. And so once you recognize that, the game is over because then we can't find buyers for treasuries and the only buyer is the Fed. And then the Fed has to you know, send the money printing into overdrive and inflation just explodes. And then nobody wants to buy any U.S. bonds. Uh, it's just going to be a complete you know, economic implosion. How do you see like bricks playing into this? You think that could be like gasoline on the fire? I mean, that's that's well, they're already meeting. They just had another big meeting. They're expanding their membership. You know, they got the Saudi, the Saudis now and the United Arab Emirates is now part of their alliance there. And Mm -hmm. look, they're trying to de dollarize and uh, Putin's, uh, you know, buddy, buddy with everybody now. You know, China and Russia have never been so close, (laughs) thanks to us. So uh, we've really united our so called enemies adversaries i'd say adversaries where i mean we're not at war with them um but you know they're, they're gonna move away from the dollar and when they do that's it i mean our, our whole way of life has been predicated on the dollar as the reserve currency and in our ability to export the dollars we print to pay for the imports of what everybody else makes the goods that they produce those days are going to go away and that means the shelves at Walmart are going to be empty. <laughs> so, so you know, what, what's the, what are they going to sell if there's nothing on the shelves? What are Americans going to buy? They're just going to have a bunch of paper money, but there's not going to be a lot of stuff to buy with it. Sure. You know, in uh, June, we had uh, Dr. Tom Woods on our show, and we talked about the dollar as the reserve currency being threatened and what the implications of that could be. I think most of our audience is aware of that being a very certain possibility. Uh, But this morning it was announced, as you just mentioned, the BRICS alliance invited Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Iran, among others. Yeah, they're they're next. They're like, you know, on deck. So it's just growing. Right. You know, they just had their their summit a few days ago and they've been touting this new gold-backed currency, which, you know, CNN says is unlikely. But do you believe this will escalate the already dwindling confidence in the dollar and maybe perhaps be the, the nail in the coffin? Oh, yeah. I mean, all of this is accelerating the move uh, out of the dollar. You know, and w- what we did to really, you know, uh, you know, push this was the sanctions against Russia. I mean, think about all the bonehead moves that Biden could have made. But we sent a very clear message to everybody in the world, get out of dollars now while you can, because we punished Russia for holding dollars. Uh, we, we punished them for holding treasuries. We used that against them. We leveraged that to try to get them to bow down to our demands. And for doing something that we didn't approve of, we punished them, but we utilized the dollar and, and, and what that tells the rest of the world is, look, if you don't want to be in this situation, it's like, you know, tying a rope around your neck and then throwing it over a tree limb and the other side into your, you know, adversary's hands yeah. and just standing there with a noose and hoping that the other guy doesn't pull the rope. 
you know? And so everybody is now, we don't want what happened to Russia to happen to us. And so it's accelerated the, the need to find an alternative to the dollar. Why would you, why, why do you suspect CNN is, is saying that it's unlikely that the, this gold-backed currency will emerge from the BRICS alliance? Do you think that's just propaganda and more like mainstream media spin or? Well, I don't think CNN has any idea what's going on. I mean, they don't understand economics. So they're, <laughs> yeah, sure, they'll, they'll dismiss this. Okay. And sure. uh, no, the dollar's days are numbered. I, I just don't know, you know, how, how large the number is. It's a lot smaller than it used to be. But gold is the obvious alternative to the dollar, you know, it's, and that's, you know, that's why a lot of other people just don't get it because they think that we, the world can't move away from the dollar unless they have another fiat currency that can replace it. And they look at the euro or they look at the Japanese yen or the Chinese RMB and they think, well, those currencies can't cut it either. So we're safe by default because there's no alternative. Well, gold is the alternative. Gold is much better than the dollar. Uh, and, and so that's where we're going. And, and that's where the, the world's monetary system used to be. Everything was anchored to gold, including the dollar. And when we first went off the, uh, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, we, we first went through Brenton Wood and the world adopted this dollar standard. The dollar was backed by gold. Not only was it backed by gold, if you had dollars, you had gold. If you had $35, you could take them to the Federal Reserve, and they gave you gold. Um, and, and so it wasn't until 1971 that we defaulted on that promise. And then now the world's been on this pure fiat system. But I think that system is in its final stages. And we're going to return to what we had prior to that, which is a monetary system based on gold. Well, I have a question in regards to that. So um, I, I hold arguably more gold and silver than I do in uh, cryptocurrencies. But, you know, your <laughs> your view on cryptocurrencies are no secret. And I want to know, like, so, you know, the, we can have a disagreement about cryptocurrencies. And I think it's just a new system being built outside of this system that may be a potentially way out of this mess. But and staying in your lane, like with with gold, how would we what would what would the solution look like if we were to stay in this gold-backed currency. How do you think we could propose a legitimate solution given the rogue nature of the government we have right now? Like, do you see the Federal Reserve like acquiescing and being like, let's go back to the gold standard now. Maybe that'll fix everything. Or how do, how do we get to that point? Because I'm all for it, right? Like I'm longtime Ron, Ron Paul supporter. Like I'm, that's exactly a, a very good solution to our monetary system. But I'm, I have a blind spot, I guess, in my head as to how we get to that point. Yeah, well, I don't think the U.S. government is going to just voluntarily go back to a gold standard because to do that, they have to surrender a lot of their power and they have to start being honest with the public about the cost of government spending and how to pay for it. So um, they don't want to do that. So they're not going to go back to a gold standard until they have no other options left. And so if we end up with a currency crisis, a sovereign death crisis, the economy is really in free fall. Um, you know, you have uh, martial law declared because there's lots of looting and, you know, you have shortages, widespread power outages, not enough food. You know, things get really bad, right? They're riding in the streets. You know, they have to find some way to reinstill confidence in uh, the monetary system. Then, then, then they may they may go back to gold. 
But until we're at that point, they're, they're just going to keep on, you know, trying to preserve the fiat standard and they're going to keep on printing money. Jesus. <laughs> that sucks, man. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't uh, seem very hopeful. Along those same lines, though, as Matt said, you know, it's it's obvious you've been a fierce advocate for gold for for decades now. I know in May, however, you spoke at the London blockchain conference. And after that, I saw an article on Yahoo Finance from late June where you talked about the potential of a gold-backed crypto on blockchain. And, and you said it was the future. Uh, you said it would make the, the metal a better monetary instrument than it was in the past. Um, can you explain what that merger with technology and precious metal could look like? And uh, I guess, do you foresee this as being a possible solution to the, the dollar collapse? Well, I mean, that is a use case of blockchain. Uh, you can use it to tokenize uh, gold and you can manage a monetary system in gold uh, with a blockchain. You can have a token uh, that is uh, divisible and easily uh, ex you know, transferred from one wallet to another instantaneously at a very low cost. Uh, so it's really everything that Bitcoin would want to be but can't because Bitcoin lacks the intrinsic value of gold. And so it can't be a store of value. So it can't be money. But gold is money. And, you know, the Internet and blockchain makes it that much more efficient to utilize it as money than when you were limited uh, to the physical metal and then eventually currency paper backed by gold. You have a digital currency backed by gold. It's so much more efficient than the paper currency. And there's already a lot of companies out there. I've, you know, I've been in talks with many of them. So they're there. I mean, there's a lot of uh, gold-based tokens out there. Um, but the, the main uh, barrier to their widespread adoption is ultimately going to be government. It's government regulation. Because it, the minute you, you create a monetary instrument, you subject yourself to tremendous regulation uh, from governments all around the world you know, under the guise of anti-money laundering or tax evasion. Uh, so that is the, 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 the big barrier. It's not the, the free market. I mean, in a free market, these things would take off and uh, everybody would use them. But the government makes them a lot less efficient by imposing, uh, you know, tremendous compliance costs and obligations uh, on, um, on the currencies. And then, you know, basically making it impossible for the conventional financial world to even, uh, you know, integrate with it because uh, of the regulations that would prevent it because it would be too suspicious uh, for, you know, money laundering or tax evasion and all that stuff. Yeah, it just seems like it's uh, it would be kind of the best of both worlds in many ways. And I was actually going to ask if you saw any like downsides or consequences, but I mean, that that's exactly it, right? It's government once again. <laughs> so, well, government, government's, got a monopoly on money and that's why their product is so bad because they don't have competition but once but then they try to eliminate the competition by using their you know their 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 police powers to basically prevent competitors from entering the market that would provide the consumer with a superior product in this case a better money a money that uh, doesn't lose value over time that is a real store of value do you see like so we have all these states recently in the last, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years um, 
where they are kind of like bucking the federal system and using the 10th Amendment to nullify the gold and silver laws at the federal level. And they're accepting or basically re-legalizing gold and silver as legal tender in their states. Have you seen that play yeah, into I mean, like- I know Texas mm-hmm. was doing something. And I think the states should definitely do that. Uh, you know, in the Constitution, it's states are clearly allowed to make gold and silver legal tender. In fact, that's the only thing they're allowed to make legal tender. And, and, and so they have a right to do that. And so it would be, you know, it'd be a fight between the federal government if they tried to limit the states. And in fact, I, I think that the, the, the federal government shouldn't be able to enforce uh, income tax. So if you're living in a state where they've made gold and silver legal tender and they create a digital token backed by gold and you in Texas decide to use that and while you own it, there's a big rise in the price of gold. And so your tokens go up in value against the dollar and then you use them to buy merchandise. I don't think the federal government should be able to legally tax you as income because it's not income. You're using the legal tender of the state to make a transaction. Uh, And it shouldn't matter what the value of that legal tender is versus the U.S. dollar uh, at the time that you you engage in that transaction. Well, you know, I mean, Winston Churchill, Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And, you know, we've already seen how the crash of 07, 08 played out. How do you anticipate central banks around the world responding to the next economic crisis? Do you do you feel like they'll probably do the same, just kind of double down? Or will they acknowledge the ramifications of their actions and policies? Or I guess that the third possibility is like, mm-hmm. do you foresee this impending financial crisis to be a Trojan horse that will usher in some type of significant structural changes, such as like maybe a digital currency or something along those lines? Well, I mean, I expect them to try to react to the next crisis exactly the way they've reacted to prior crises by printing money, you know, uh, creating inflation. Sure. But it's because they did that for so long that we are in so much trouble right now. Yeah, instead of a real solution to the problems, we just papered over the problems and created inflation to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. And and we allowed the underlying problems to get bigger. And um, so now, you know, if they do do what they did before, they just have to do it on a bigger scale. We need we need even bigger QE. They're going to have to print even more money. Uh, you know, I don't know if they could take rates negative in the U.S. Last time they stopped at zero, but Europe went negative. But, you know, just like with drugs, there's a point where you can't keep supporting an ever-growing habit because you have to take so much of a drug that you, you, your body can't handle it and you die of an overdose. And the equivalent of an overdose on that stimulus would be hyperinflation, right? A, a currency implosion. So uh, it's going to have to stop. Sure. So like, I mean, using your your analogy there, I mean, if we are an addict addicted to drugs instead of meth being the dollar would like a methadone be like a CBDC where they could still kind of get their fix, but it's kind of this new illusory financial system. No, a central bank digital currency that doesn't change anything on the inflation front. Uh, It just gives the government more power and control over the people, but it's not going to instill confidence in the currency and it's not going to, make up for the fact that once they get a digital currency, they'll probably be inflating the supply of that even faster than they inflated the supply of the paper currency. Sure. 
Yeah, I, I agree com- completely. I was just wondering if maybe you thought that would be like the Trojan horse that they introduce CBDCs with. Does that seem maybe likely or do you kind of see that rollout being a little bit different? Well, I mean, it's hard to say how it's going to be. Um, I, 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 I guess it all depends on when the crisis starts, like um, how early in the process, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, speaking of CBDCs, you know, I saw a, a tweet of yours recently that uh, called the the Federal Reserve like America's worst enemy, you know, and people are trying to focus outwards of the inside of this country. And I tend to agree with that. But I see also see how the Federal Reserve is has tentacles, you know, into all these multinational uh, think tanks like the Atlantic Council, you know, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, the World Economic Forum. And they're, you know, they're arguably a very powerful force behind this entire monetary control system who has actually been, um, you know, advocating for these central bank digital currencies for a while now. They actually have, you know, working papers on them. The U.S. Treasury put one out recently. Um, so get, like given your stance on like on how the Federal Reserve is, you know, is, is arguably one of the most dangerous uh, entities to, um, you know, Americans. How do you think that these multinational organizations and think tanks uh, play into this whole scam? You know, I really don't know uh, to what extent, you know, they're involved. I mean, a lot of people like to point in that direction and see some hidden conspiracies to, you know, undermine America. And, uh, you know, well, I mean, I'm just saying they put out papers pushing for central bank digital currencies. And then here we have the U.S. Treasury putting them out. A year later, that's don't you know, that's uh, yeah, well, that I mean, these guys are all thinking the same way, but yeah, the government loves and the government likes anything that gives them more power and more control, that's what they're about. But the yeah. public should uh, should resist that, but yeah, I mean, I was watching those debates last night, uh, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, there was an argument over who's the bigger threat, you know, who's our real enemy, is it China, is it Russia? But from my perspective, the real enemy is, is here. It's not foreign. It's domestic. It's our own federal government. It's our own Federal Reserve. That's who Americans have to worry about. That's what's going to undermine our liberty, our prosperity, our posterity. I mean, the threat is coming from within. And we have to be concerned about that. Russia and China, that's just a distraction. You know, we, they, they're, trying to, they're trying to tell us, you know, like a magician, you know, oh, look over there. Don't pay any attention to what's happening here. Look, oh, look at China. Look at Russia. No, no, no. Let's look at Washington, D.C. That that has a much more immediate effect on everybody. I agree, man. I like when the, the, the day that China comes to my door and kidnaps me and puts me in a cage for not giving them enough of my paycheck every month, then I'll be worried <laughs> about the, China. You know, right? The only thing China does is give you the option to buy a bunch of nice stuff that they produce at a low price. Yeah, you know. and they're building. Or you know, <laughs> if you're a teenage teenager, they let you use TikTok for free. <laughs> yeah, well, they spend the all problem. their time on it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess there's mixed uh, sentiments about you know the effect that's happening on the American youth. But um, back to the CBDC stuff, and you know, I don't know how much you're really paying attention to the CBDC stuff. I, I know, as you mentioned, there is a little bit of a worry and concern by maybe more of the conspiracy theorists leaning libertarians, but it seems like our country is divided between people who are unfamiliar with CBDCs. Like they've never even heard of it. They don't know what that stands for. 
And then the other half are adamantly opposed to them. And we've seen other countries adopt them. In fact, Brazil, CBDC's name was just revealed called the Drex. It's expected to go live in 2024. And uh, the Fed now launched in July, which, you know, isn't quite a CBDC, but it kind of has some of the same internal workings. Um, And, you know, Russia is beginning CBDC trials with several banks. So it seems like we're heading in that direction as a, a global economy. And I personally am working on a publication right now that I'm almost done with trying to familiarize people and prepare them for CBDCs. Now, obviously, we could buy gold and metals, but is there anything else you could suggest that are maybe ways people could prepare for CBDCs? Well, I don't know that there's any preparation that would be required. It would just, assuming they get introduced and they don't withdraw the physical currency from circulation, it's just another method of payment. You could pay using uh, central bank digital currency if you have a wallet, which, you know, you could, I don't know if they'll set up, you know, their own special kind of wallets, but, you know, you would just have the, it would be fungible, you know, one digital dollar would be one uh, paper dollar and it would just, you know, merchants could accept it as payment. If it's more efficient to use that than, you know, than, than uh, ACH or a Visa MasterCard or something like that. Individuals could certainly pay each other. I, you know, you could pay your babysitter uh, by just transferring some digital currency. So you don't need to write out a check. You don't you don't need a bank. Uh, and, and as long as it's just a, an option. And people can choose not to pay their bills that way, they can pay with actual cash. That's fine. But the problem is, you know, once the government has that mechanism in place, they're going to want to close off all the alternatives. Because if you if you go and buy something for cash, the government doesn't know what you bought. They doesn't they don't know who you bought it from. Uh, and they want to know for all sorts of reasons. A, they want to make sure that the guy who you paid pays his taxes. Yep. And B, they want to know, well, well, did you buy something illegal? Are you doing something wrong? Did you buy something you shouldn't have bought? Or they just might want to identify you by what you purchased. I mean, let's say, oh, you bought a MAGA hat. Oh, that's a Trump guy. Well, let's put him on the watch list. He's clearly he's clearly a potential threat, right? He's buying a MAGA hat or whatever. But when you pay in cash, they don't know what you bought. They don't know who you bought it from. They, they have no idea. So, you know, they, they, they don't like that. If they have a way of knowing for sure what you bought and who you paid, they'd prefer it. Now, I don't like that because it's inherently a situation that enables the government to get far more abusive, to become far more corrupt. So given that scenario, and, uh, you know, we know that you have, you, you would make a living on advising people on where to put their money and how to do that. Like without giving away any secrets in this crazy economic environment that we're living under right now, where are you currently advising people to put their money? I mean, not not that you have to get into any details or anything like that, but you know, just uh, just but it's certainly not a secret. I mean, I've been <laughs> screaming it pretty loud for a while. It's not like <laughs> this threat didn't just show up. I mean, it's been looming right. for a long, long time, and you know, the day of reckoning is way overdue. But you know, you're talking about gold, yeah, gold, silver. I mean, that's why I've got shift gold. That's why we're uh, telling people to buy gold and silver. And get rid of paper so you have something real, something tangible that can't be inflated away, which is going to happen to the dollar. 
But then I also recommend that people have a completely different portfolio of investments when it comes to stocks and bonds. You've got to understand how uh, even if we don't have hyperinflation, we're going to have very high inflation uh, and much higher nominal interest rates and asset prices are going to have to collapse in real terms. And so to protect yourself against that and to achieve a real rate of return that exceeds inflation, I think you got to invest abroad and you got to invest in the type of companies that will thrive in the type of economic environment that is at the other side of this crisis. And that's what I'm doing. I think I'm buying quality companies that are going to uh, emerge as the winners in this uh, global, uh, you know, reshuffling of the deck. You know, the U.S. was at the top and it's not going to be there anymore uh, once the dollar is no longer the reserve currency. So you got to understand what that implies and 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 what that portends for uh, currency exchange rates and asset values. But yeah, I mean, I think people need to get their portfolios properly positioned. And that's what we're doing every day. As we get new clients at Europe Pacific Asset Management, we are getting them prepared. We're getting them portfolios, constructing portfolios that are paying good dividends, but which I think will uh, increase in value substantially if I'm right about what I believe is going to happen here in the U.S. and to the U.S. dollar. Well, I know you you likely will be right, but I really hope you're not, man. <laughs> well, you can, you know, you can hope your house doesn't burn down, but you should still have some fire insurance. <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm making those same moves financially, too. So that's, I mean, we've always been advocate, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And hoping for the best hasn't really panned out too well, but uh, preparing for the worst certainly has. Yeah, we haven't had the worst yet. Wait till you see how bad it's going to get. That's the thing. I mean, it's already pretty bad. Yeah, I actually had a question about that exactly because, you know, the Department of Agriculture says that food prices have increased 6% this year. Gas prices hit a 2023 high at the beginning of this month. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tell us the consumer price index has increased 3.2% this year. It seems like just, you know, since the pandemic, life has just gotten much more expensive, especially for the average American. Do you see any end in sight with Bidenomics and the rampant inflation, or should we just basically get used to it? I mean, is there anything that we could do? Well, you, I mean, it's not just getting used to it. It's, you know, figure out how to deal with it, figure out how to sure. overcome it, how to stay ahead of sure. it. That's what you sure. have to do. I mean, you need to plan for it and adapt to it. So it's not like I'm just going to get used to it and that I'm just going to keep getting screwed and I'm going to lie here and I'm <laughs> going to take it, right? You, you got to recognize that inflation is not going away. And so you have to do something about that. You have to alter what you were doing in the past when it wasn't as big a threat as it is now and as it will be in the future. It's going to be a bigger threat. Excellent point. Besides, you know, the government not printing billions of dollars, though, but like what shifts need to occur to start seeing lower consumer prices and just some relief for the American people? Well, we need to change the supply and demand. So what we need, you know, because prices are determined by supply and demand. Demand pushes prices up, right? Uh, if there's more demand, the demand is coming from money creation and credit. Credit card debts at all-time record highs. Student loans are at record highs. I mean, auto loans, everything is at a record. The mm -hmm. government debt is at a record. Corporations keep borrowing. So we're all borrowing and printing and spending. So that has to stop. Uh, we need to see a big decline in spending and a big increase in savings from, you know, everybody. 
So from the public to the federal government, we need to have big cuts in government spending. We need much smaller deficits. In fact, we should turn the deficits into surpluses. That would be very helpful. But we're still moving in the wrong direction. Now, the Fed is not printing as much money as it was, but it's still extending a lot of credit. Even though the cost of money has gone up, interest rates, people keep on borrowing. People haven't reacted to the high interest rates to stop borrowing. Credit card rates are at all-time record highs. The average rate now is over 20%, but credit card balances are at all-time highs too. So people aren't paying off their credit card debt because interest rates are so high. They're just borrowing even more money. So nothing is working. You know, the rate hikes have done nothing but add to the problem because they've increased the cost of everything. We haven't had any cuts in government spending. We haven't had any cuts in borrowing. So until we spend less and produce more, that's what we need to do. And if we if we spent less, we could produce more because then we would have more savings and that could finance some capital investment to increase our productivity. But we're not doing that. We're not doing any of the things that are necessary to lower inflation. Everything we continue to do is just guaranteeing that it's going to get higher. Feels that way. <laughs> yeah. Man, there's one solution we haven't brought up yet here, though, that uh, a lot of young Americans these days are, are pushing for it and ignorantly pushing for it. And it's the solution which a lot of people in the government are currently also advocating for, and that is socialism, right? We have socialism like is just making, we have politicians in the United States Congress who call themselves socialists, right? Like Bernie and uh, AOC, they, they literally refer to themselves as democratic socialists. And clearly they have no idea what that even means, right? Or they wouldn't be doing that. But it's does seem that like this might be a, a future, if you will, government imposed solution to the problems that they're creating right now, right? That they could blame everything that's happening right now on capitalism, on the evil capitalists and how they burn down the economy. And then we need to usher in uh, this, you know, new form of government where everybody's equal and we distribute wealth uh, via the, you know, central command. So like, and I, I know that sounds crazy, but that's not far-fetched and that's how Literally, it's happened dozens of times before in just the last hundred years, right? So, if that happens, you know, like the 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 conventional means of, you know, saving wealth and investment investing in long term are, aren't going to be uh, very reliable, right? The government could seize control of the stock market. They could they could seize control of everything, even your bank account. And um, I guess my question is that, like. How would one be able to invest in a scenario that was like that? Like, well, if you're worried about the government seizing assets, right? The best asset to own would be, you know, gold. Yeah. That you have in your physical possession because they can't seize it if they if they can't get it. And well, they did go around door to door, right, back in the day, and and took people. Well, they've gold. never done that. They're not. It's they're, it's not the medieval time. They're not going to come ransacking through your house. I mean, the assets that they're going to go after would be the ones that in the bank because they 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 control that very easily. But yeah, I mean, when we have a real economic crisis, they may declare some kind of martial law and say the Constitution doesn't matter right now. We do what we want because it's this emergency. And because it's an emergency, we're seizing everybody's brokerage accounts. I don't know. We're seeing it. We're too, you know, the government needs the money. I mean, it's like they can draft you when there's a war. They can force yeah. you to fight. So 
you know, certainly during an emergency, if they can inscript you into military service and put you on a battlefield and force you to, you know, die in combat, I guess they could take your bank account. Oh, we've seen it, <laughs> you know, not, not in the United States uh, per se, but we've seen it play out in European countries and, um, you know, with, within recent history. So it's uh it's not a far-fetched scenario. And I, I given like this weird push that we see from all these people quoting Marx and these openly socialist movements that are, you know, have support in the mainstream media and, and from government officials themselves, it's a, uh, it's kind of crazy that, that, that might, that might be coming in, you know, and uh, with all this talk about equity and, you know, that like, that's what I see happening. And I see these people that look kind of benign and these blue haired folks that may or may not, you know, they, they look a little frail and, and unintimidating, you know, but those are the people that, you know, wouldn't mind like laying waste and killing, you know, thousands of people just because they didn't agree with them. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a scary yeah. situation that we're right on, that we're on right there. You know, what do you see? Like, the, I mean, you, you, you see that the state would have to, you know, everything would collapse and there'd be nothing on the, the shelves, but where would the state come in at that, you know, at that level where, what would, what would they do after that? Like, I don't know. I mean, what I think is going to happen is as the dollar really starts to tank and prices really start to go up, my expectation is that price controls will be the first thing that they, they try. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll, they'll try to stop companies from raising prices. So let's say it's gas. Let's say gasoline, you know, goes up to $10 a gallon. And the government is like, well, we, we can't we can't let it get any higher than that. We're just going to freeze the price at 10. Right? Well, if the dollar keeps falling and oil prices on world markets keep rising, um, what happens if the real gas price is is twenty dollars? Um, you know, the stations can't buy it at 20 and sell it for 10. I mean, they, they, they won't make any money. So. They'd have to dramatically reduce how much gas they bought, potentially domestically, in order to be able to get it at a price that's low enough to sell it for a profit. But then they wouldn't have nearly enough gas to go around, so there'd be huge shortages. So then how do you ration it? See, in a free market, the way you ration stuff is as the price goes up, people just take themselves out of the market. I, I, don't, I, I can't afford that much. I'll, I'll ride my bike. I won't buy as much gas or... Somebody will say, well, uh, my wife and I will carpool it or we'll work from home. I mean, people who can't afford to pay the higher prices will just stop buying. But the people who have an economic need and who can justify it, well, they'll keep paying it. Right. So that's that's the fairest way to ration anything is the people who need it the most. They're willing to pay the most. And if you can do without it and, and find a substitute, then you'll drop out of the market. And so that's how you bring supply and demand into balance when price is allowed to be determined freely in the market. But if the government just artificially holds the price down, well, then everybody wants gas. Uh, nobody has to give it up because, you know, it's at a low price. And then there's not enough to go around. So now what do you do? You have long lines. You have, you know, these odd even days or they limit. OK, nobody can buy more than three gallons at a time or whatever they're going to do, you know. Uh, but then, you know, what happens is you develop a black market. See, now people will illegally sell gas because, hey, if you want real, if you want gas here, I'll, you can buy it, you know, in the back here. 
but then it really costs you because now you're breaking the law and it's going to be a lot more expensive because the person who's selling you the oil on the black market or gas on the black market, he risks going to jail. So he's got to charge a lot more, right? That's why illegal drugs are a lot more expensive than they would be if they were legal because the criminals selling them to you, you know, have to charge extra because they have to, you know, they keep going to jail or whatever they, you know, they have. It's just a lot riskier. Uh, and so it's, they charge a lot more and there's not as much competition. Uh, but And this could happen with everything. This could happen with food. Price of food starts going up and the government puts price controls. You can't charge more than this for milk. You can't charge more than this for eggs. And what does that mean? Well, there's not enough milk, not enough eggs. How are you going to get it? You know, so it may start there just with price controls. And then when you have shortages, when people are waiting in long lines at a supermarket trying to get bread, uh, you know, fights break out. You know, sure. uh, a lot of a lot of bad stuff happens when when people are frustrated and hungry and cold, you know, or living in the dark, you know, and if it's the summer and they, they don't have any air conditioning and it's the winter and they don't have any heat because it's all being rationed. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful example, exactly, of, you know, how government manipulates the economy and distorts the market and destabilizes our lives. So I appreciate you kind of walking through that with our audience. And I, I agree 100 percent. And it kind of feels like, you know, at this point, anything is possible in late stage statism. <laughs> there is kind of this bigger picture here, though, and we often kind of get focused on America's astronomical debt level, which is, of course, you know, thirty two point seven trillion, which is nothing to sneeze at. But we rarely hear about or discuss the debt levels that have been rising in many countries. And in mid-July, uh, Reuters reported that a UN report suggested that the, the global public debt hit a record $92 trillion, uh, with the worldwide debt increasing more than five times in the last two decades. So like, what are your thoughts on the potential consequences of high levels of government debt and deficits, not just in the U.S., but as a global concern in, in general? Well, yeah, I mean, we have too much debt and um, particularly government debt, which is non-productive debt. It's debt that finances consumption rather than uh, investment. Uh, and so it's not self-liquidating. It doesn't raise our standard of living. It's just a drain on the global economy. So it's, a, it's bad. I mean, governments around the world have too much debt. It's just a problem everywhere. It's not just the United States. But obviously, the United States is a net debtor nation. So we owe the rest of the world. So there are other countries that are net creditors. I mean, America used to be the world's biggest creditor. Uh, now we're not only the world's biggest debtor, but we owe more than all the other debtor nations combined. So that's a big problem. So debt is um, a bigger problem here than it is in other countries, but it's a problem there too. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, so. I mean, you don't see like kind of a domino effect happening, though, as far as like the collapse of maybe one economy in one country and then having some type of, you know, I guess, snowball effect in the future. I mean, it's all central banks, right? So it, it seems like this is kind of interconnected and it seems like uh, it could be disastrous, not just for the U.S. if there is some type of serious global collapse. Yeah, well, actually, I, I think it's going to be a net positive for the rest of the world. It's definitely going to be a net negative for the U.S. But if you understand the nature of the relationship between America and the rest of the world, Americans collectively live beyond their means, made possible because the rest of the world collectively lives beneath their means. The world pays a giant subsidy to the United States 
to uh, preserve the dollar as the reserve currency. Mm-hmm. And and so when that burden is lifted from the world, when the world no longer has to support the lavish lifestyle of Americans and the you know voracious spending of the American government, uh, that's going to be a, a positive. It's like you know a, a big sack of weights lifted from their back. They've been running a race and they've been bogged down by all this extra weight. And now that the weight is gone and, you know, it's going to be easier. So I think collectively the world is going to be better off when it moves away from the dollar standard. America, of course, is going to be much worse off because now we're going to have to start producing. And that's a lot harder than printing. (laughs) So it's going to be a big game changer. Yeah, well, there's certainly consequences to weaponizing the dollar for decades and decades. And I guess it makes sense why the BRICS alliance is escalating. Well, it, it would have happened anyway. I mean, we just accelerated it. I mean, it was already overdue. But sure. yeah, I mean, we, we sped up the process for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've heard you say some of this stuff, you know, years ago. So yeah. it, it seems like it is overdue, most definitely. Okay, one last question here, Peter. We're changing gears, make, maybe to more of a broad question. I know we talked about the Republican debates last night. Uh, I, I caught a, a part of it. It was certainly lively. It felt more like an American Idol episode than a political <laughs> debate. But um, I suppose that's kind of par for the course these days for Clown World USA. But did you catch any of the debate? And like, who do you like right now? Who do you suspect will be the Republican nominee? Well, you know, I caught all of the debate. <laughs> so, um, And, you know, I talked about it on my podcast. I thought it was like an episode of The Apprentice where all these guys are, you know, trying to land the job of VP on the Trump yep. ticket. Yeah. You know, that's basically <laughs> it. That's a good <laughs> analogy. Right. But yeah. of the candidates that were there, and of course I wanted Larry Elder to be there. He's a great guy. And it was really mm-hmm. a shame what they did to him because he met all the criteria. And then they changed the criteria after he met it to try to keep him off the stage. And, and, and so now he's suing, but he should have just been up there, but forgetting about Larry Elder. So the person who I thought, was the strongest candidate that the Republicans could nominate was uh, Doug Burgum, who is the current governor of North Dakota. Okay. And nobody really knows this guy. He doesn't even have 10,000 Twitter followers. But he's got an excellent background in entrepreneurship. He's a, He's got a great track record in his tenure as governor. He's not a career politician. He didn't become governor until much later in life. And before governor, that was it. That was his first job, right? A governor of a state. So I think he's got a great resume, uh, good looking guy. He could be a little taller. That would help him if he was a little taller, <laughs> only five, eight. But um, as long as he stays on a podium a lot, stands on a, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think Biden's only about five eleven. He's not that tall either, but still um, the, um, He's a good guy. I mean, he from what he said, you know, he understands the Constitution. He's uh, he wants to deregulate. He wants to cut back on the size of government. Uh, and so I think he's a strong candidate, you know, unless there's some kind of skeleton in his closet. Uh, you know, Biden doesn't have a chance against this guy. This guy would kill him. Um, as far as uh, Vivek uh, Ramawas, Ramawas, how do you pronounce his name? Ramos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's got a weird name, like, you know, like Barack Obama, right? He's, you know, and he's, he's Indian. He's not, you know, so he's, you know, he's kind of like 
very different from the typical candidate that the Republicans would field. You know, he's not a white man. I mean, he's a man, but Indian descent, um, no political experience whatsoever and extremely young. I mean, even younger than Barack Obama. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think he's passionate. I think he's a smart guy. Uh, everybody was criticizing him because he didn't have any experience. That's the best part. He did. He doesn't have any experience <laughs> wrecking the country and running up debt. And, you know, I mean, I was thinking. The, the experience that, that, you know, guys like, um, uh, Mike Pence has, you know, I, 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 who the hell wants that experience? I mean, yeah. Begging for war. Like, or, or, you know, Chris Christie or, you know, all these guys. I mean, I want a guy that's, that's, that, that's built a business that understands the harm that government regulation does that, 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 that understands the role of government. So those are the two guys that were on the stage that, you know, I, I like the most. I mean, and so I, I would, you know, I, I think either one of them, you know, the, I mean, they would be better nominees now, you know, then, but none of them are going to be the nominee. There's, they got no chance against Trump. Trump, Trump's, Trump's got such a commanding lead. All these guys are doing is fighting for the non-Trump vote. But if they split up the non-Trump vote among four or five guys, Trump wins. You don't have to have a majority to win these primaries. You just need to get the most electors. So if Trump's got, you know, even 40% and nobody else can even muster 20, I mean, he just walks away with it. Definitely. And we saw, like, I don't know if you watched the Tucker um interview with him last night but i've, I've watched been... part of that now I, I started watching it today and i haven't been able to see the whole thing yeah Not halfway through everybody's celebrating that it's getting so many views on twitter which is cool that an independent like tucker carlson is getting uh you know a bunch of views and more than fox news and all that but oh he's getting to... crazy he's getting crazy amounts of views i mean if these numbers are are legitimate on uh, on x He's already got 241 yeah. million views. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, this that's morning. that's almost the number of Americans there are. <laughs> right, I right. Mean, but he played obviously he's getting people are watching it. But how many people probably watch the debates? Two, three million? I don't know. What's the, what are the Niels? What are the ratings on the debates? Yeah, it was less than that. It was less than that. <laughs> I mean, clips on Twitter are getting, um, you know, a lot more engagement, like clips of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. They're getting a lot of engagement. They're getting millions and millions of views. Ramaswamy. Oh. I don't know why I can't pronounce that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramaswamy. <laughs> you threw me off when you mispronounced it. I was like, oh, man. I, I listened to him on uh, Barry Weiss uh, <laughs> podcast last yeah. week. And uh, I, I liked a lot of what he had to say, except for his uh, advocacy. I wonder, has Trump come service. up with a nickname for him yet? VR. <laughs> 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 Good question. And there's no way Biden's going to remember how to pronounce his name. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the, the, what do you call it? What's the thing? Uh, Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy. Right. <laughs> well, uh, Peter, this is like the end of our show here. And we like to always end on uh, what we call like a white pill, you know, giving we, we've talked about some pretty bleak scenarios over the last hour here. So we like to end on a positive note and try to give our listeners something that they can do or 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 look forward to or, um, you know, a potential way that they could, you know, fight back and what in the what this financial 
implosion that we've been talking about for the last hour. Uh, like just a, you know, it doesn't have to be very far into depth or anything like that, but like how, what is the quickest possible way that we could reverse course and fix this right now that's actually plausible? Well, there's no practical way that we're going to reverse course. I mean, I, I, I know what needs to be done, but it's not going to be done. I mean, so you have to accept reality. It's like there's going to be this massive crash. There's nothing we can do to stop it. All we can do is brace for the impact, right? We, 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 we can't. I mean, there are correct policies that we should be implementing right now that would make this, uh, you know, a much easier transition to make. But we, we have to make a transition, right? I mean, it's like if you are, you know, have a drug problem and you want to get off that drug problem, you can't skip the withdrawal. You know, you, you, you got to go to rehab and even though it's a little tough, you still got to do it, right? It's, you know, no pain, no gain, right? So we, we, there's nothing that I know that allows us to skip the pain, but I do know ways that will minimize it and accelerate the process so that we get the gain a lot quicker and we end up with an even bigger gain. So we just have to go through this transition from a phony bubble economy, uh, you know, where we borrow and spend to an economy where we save and produce. But, you know, there are ways to accelerate that transition and make it a lot smoother. Right. But that's not going to happen. So forget about it. We're, go we're you know, we're, we're just going to go, you know, crash. It's going to be crash and burn. Right. The economy is in trouble. And the politicians are going to do nothing because the stuff that I know has to be done will accelerate It'll happen sooner, yeah. but it will we'll get over it quicker and it won't be as painful. But politicians don't care about uh, that. They don't want any short-term pain. They'd rather have long-term pain, even if it's much worse. They just want to get to the next election. So they'll never do something to avert a crisis if it also uh, involves a lot of pain, even if it spares us even worse pain when the crisis happens, right? Yeah. But what you can do is protect yourself. That's it. That's all you can do. You can protect yourself. You can protect your family with the right investments. You can protect your portfolio, protect the value of your savings. That's what I'm helping people do because that's where I can make a difference. I mean, I, I can't make a difference uh, in Washington politics. There's, I mean, there, I'm, there's not enough of me. You know, the people <laughs> who follow me, uh, we, we don't we don't amount to a hill of beans when it comes to the vote. There's too many people getting checks from the government that are that they're never going to vote for any of this stuff. Uh, and, and, and there's too many people that are just so just ignorant of all this. Uh, you know, we're going to get outvoted. So, you know, those people, though, they're going to go broke. That's the big difference is the people who don't understand this and they keep voting in these socialists to, to create inflation. They don't understand what's happening. They're going to get wiped out. All their government promises, all the money they expect is going to be worthless when they get it or practically worthless. Uh, but we can do something now, and that's what people should do. I mean, they should contact me at your Pacific Asset Management, talk to my reps, get an account transferred in. If you want to do it yourself, I have five mutual funds that I manage, that I own. You can buy them no load at all the major discount brokerage firms, the Europe Pacific family of funds. You can learn about my funds at my website at europac.com, and then you can buy them yourself, or you can open up an account with me, and, and we'll manage your portfolio with you of those funds, buy the funds for you. We have separately managed accounts. 
and you should get some gold. You know, contact Shift Gold. Talk to the, the reps there. Make sure you have some gold and silver, you know, in your possession. Hide it somewhere in your house. Just make sure nobody knows where you put it. <laughs> and don't forget where you put it yourself. That can be frustrating. I've had that happen. You hide it so good, you don't remember where you put it. So. Or you could be that guy who's looking through the the dump, you know, for his millions of dollars on uh, his flash drive of Bitcoin, you know. So hopefully that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. You know, Peter, we were going to ask you if you wanted to do any plugs, but you've been doing this for so long. You know, you're so good. You just threw the plugs in there already anyway. So, well, I'll plug, I'll plug my social media, you know, I okay. so you, sure. you know, you could, people, people should listen to me. I got out what, 560,000 subscribers now on YouTube and it's been slow build. You know, it's taken a long time to build that up towards a million. I'm not, I'm barely, you know, halfway there, but, um, you know, follow me, you know, uh, on YouTube, just subscribe. I've almost got a million Twitter followers, so I'm getting close. I'm about 40,000 away. So definitely follow me on Twitter. I tweet quite a bit or whatever, post now. No, I don't tweet. I, I guess I post. Um, so I post a lot, and um, it's me doing it. So that's kind of how I if, I, if I think of something, I mean, I, I, I do that. So follow me there, but I'm also on uh, Instagram, Facebook. I'm even on TikTok. So, you know, you can go to all those platforms and, and follow me and then, and then tell your friends to follow me <laughs> and uh, help me spread the word because uh, there's so much fake news out there. Somebody's got to explain reality. Absolutely. You're doing a wonderful job of that. You've even uh, retweeted our posts a few times and uh, I think you reached, you shared some of our stuff on Instagram after we tagged you as well. So we certainly appreciate you for doing that. And uh, realistically, you know, I mean, all you really have to do is turn on a TV, turn it on to the business news channel, and you'll likely see Peter on there, guys. So uh, definitely give him a follow on Twitter and follow his Euro Pacific Asset Management account there as well. And uh, Mr. Schiff, we very much appreciate your time today. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you. And uh, thank you for being one of the only sane, only rational and liberty-minded mainstream financial commentators on the planet. So we oh. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, appreciate you having me on your 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 uh, program here. And keep up the good work. Right on. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>